what I want to do tonight is remind us of what we're doing in our series uh, here at GCF. We took a long hiatus. You're learning school, so again, so let's learn where we were at. We're looking at the book of 1 Peter in a series called This Next Life. And Peter in this book is painting a portrait of tension between, uh, for all of us who consider ourselves Christians, as we find ourselves living in a present life, but also having the promise of a new life in Jesus Christ. And what this book looks for is this mesh point, this point where our life we had here on this earth and the life we have in Christ meshes together. And we finished a portion uh, last semester where Peter gives guidelines for living in a bunch of different areas of life. He talks about how we are to live under government rulers, how we are to live as employees and servants, how we are to live as husbands and wives. And today, um, he's going to give us the why of all of this. Why is it that, we, that our actions are important? And what Peter is getting at <clears throat> is that in all of our uh, things that Peter has showed us, our decisions, our affections, our attitudes, they're unique from people who are around us. And he knows that these mindsets and these actions set us apart. They actually make us countercultural. They actually make us revolutionaries. And I grimace as I say that word because so often the word revolutionary is held up as like this great thing of grandeur. And also we live in today's America where from protests to looting to riots to social media to a bunch of guys today who climbed a crane in Washington, D.C. just to drop a banner that says resist, everyone considers themselves revolutionaries. Even myself, who am morally opposed to the fanaticism of revolutions, am part of an anti-revolution revolution. And though I have never tweeted it, never had a card for it, never had a sign for it, my actions speak in my participation of it. Because before there was tweeting, posting, and Facebook living, revolutions happened merely by the actions of the dissenters. And Peter has began, in these last few passages that we looked at a couple months ago now, he's began to build a base of revolutionary action. And it doesn't need a huge social media presence, but what he's going to do now, he's going to take those actions and he's going to pivot them to revolutionary ends revolutionaries, revolutionaries for Jesus, will face resistance. And Peter knows this. He knows that people who live in light of eternity will face conflict and face uh, this war which happens when we live with people who live their lives at the altar of today. Eternity mattering and today mattering builds a tension. Look at this tension that Paul speaks about in 1 Corinthians 20 uh, verses 20 through 25. Where's the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demanded signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So if you are in here and you consider yourself a Christian, 
and you understand this gospel, this good news of Jesus changing you, then in order for you to be a truly authentic Christian, for you to really believe what it is you say you believe in, it's impossible to live without the cross showing up at some point in your life. And when this happens, Paul just said, this is seen as foolishness. This is seen as folly. This is seen as a stumbling block. This is seen as weakness. So what Peter wants to do today is he wants to prepare you to live as a revolutionary. He wants you to understand that the love you have for Jesus is going to, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when, the love you have for Jesus will clash with the love our culture has for itself. And this is to be expected. Jesus says this in John 15, verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And so if there's one thing that has typified Christians throughout the centuries, it's been that we have always been a persecuted minority. Perhaps not always in every country at all times, but there has been persecution. And in this passage, Peter is going to fit us with the lens of perseverance. He's going to unpack for us the beauty of the gospel which saves us, but he's also going to give us three distinct mindsets, three mindsets of the Christian revolutionary, three things that we must fit ourselves with if we want to live Christianly and be prepared for that which comes our way. And this is what we're going to see tonight is that the mindset of the Christian before culture must be the mindset of the cross. Especially for college students. It is not an option for any Christian, let alone college Christians, to remove themselves from their culture. God has put us in culture to redeem it, to proclaim in it. But as you live in this culture, you must understand the posture that the, the gospel gives us. And this posture is the posture of the cross. So let's pray and we'll dive in tonight. Lord, we um, pray for this text. Um, pray for the failings of my weak human voice, which may or may not make it uh, through the rest of this sermon. But Lord, I pray uh, for strength that we might see the urgency and necessity in this time of relative peace, in this time of uh, relative comfort, that we might prepare our hearts for whatever it is you have for us, be it tomorrow, be it next week, be it next year, or be it in 20 years that we might be fitted with a gospel which calls us to persevere because we have a right view of what the cross means for us. We love you, Lord. We pray this in your name. Amen. So, we're going to see the first mindset of the Christian revolutionary um, in 1 Peter 3, 8 through 12, where Peter says this, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good dates, good dates, you could apply that there if you want, I guess. Whoever seeks to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. 
So it's expected soon, perhaps uh, in a matter of two weeks, that President Donald Trump will make his nomination for the U.S. Supreme Court. And I have written, tweeted, and requested my own suggestion. That is Owen, my four-year-old son. And I've noticed something in Owen, and to a lesser extent in my daughter Adley, who turned two today. And that is that Owen is zealous for justice. If his sister wrongs him, he will receive, she will receive retribution. If his parents have promised him, he will exact his due compensation. And if desserts are offered to him, he will do everything possible to ensure a fair amount. And as I watch this little legalistic Larry in his rule keeping, I look at this and I say, I'm Owen. I'm that person. All of us have this deep desire for justice. We have an insatiable longing for rights to be, or for wrongs to be punished and for rights to be rewarded. And this is why we love shows like Serial or Making a Murderer, because it gets at the inner lawyer inside of us where we are, are, are interested in the idea of justice because it's such a human longing for right things to happen to good people and for wrong people to receive their just retribution. But one thing the cross does is that the cross frames the Christian's perspective on what is just. It frames the Christian perspective on what is right. And this is the first mindset Peter gives us tonight, is that the mindset of the Christian revolutionary is Jesus over retaliation. Jesus over and above retaliation. And Peter silences that inner lawyer here when he says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you are called. And I really can't think, having two little experiments in my house and this big experiment in my chest, I can't think of anything more antithetical to our human nature than what Paul just called, Peter just called us to do. Just today, Somebody cut me off in traffic, and the first thing I wanted, he's going fast, he's flying, I look around and say, please let there be a cop. Right? We look around like, oh, I wish there was a cop here to just nail that guy. We want him to be punished. It's not like, oh, he's definitely in a hurry, I should slow down and move out of his way. We want this retribution. And, but look at the weight scripture places on this desire. Matthew 5, the words of Jesus, beginning in verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So here we see Peter saying this gist of do not repay evil for evil. And here we say Jesus saying, do not turn away from the one who does evil. So the question is, is God just the doormat for all evil? Is God unconcerned with justice? He deals with this massive cosmic thing and anything else is just child's play. No, we know that God is not unconcerned with justice. So the question you need to ask yourself if you seek to apply this text rightly is what gives you the ability, what gives you the rightness to not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling? The cross. Jesus says in John 9, 39 that for judgment he came into the world. 
Luke 18, Jesus says that he will bring justice speedily. You see, it sounds foreign to us to bless those who curse us because we simply think about punishing those who have harmed us. But on the cross, justice and judgment is met for everyone. The cross is the clearest picture of justice and no one escapes it. We have all sinned. All of us are in need of retribution. But the first person to apply this text was Jesus himself. It was Jesus who practiced what he preached in choosing to apply blessing over retribution because before any of you were ever wronged, you wronged God. Before anyone ever offended your slightest sensibility, the fact that you came out of the womb not honoring and believing the God who made you meant that you were offensive to God and the wages of that sin is death. Romans 6.23 the merit of your offense is death. And so the cross stands as this icon for justice with death being the final judgment. To get what humanity deserves, humanity dies. But funerals are still sad. Death is the most just experience a Christian outside of Christ will ever have because they get exactly what it is they deserved. You see, you can view the cross in two ways. You can view the cross and do nothing, and in it you die under the weight of your own sin. Or you can view the cross by grace through faith and see Christ dying for your sins in your faith. We all die. We all meet that justice. You either die with Christ or you die without Christ. But the cross is what upholds justice. Jesus is the one who accomplishes retribution and blessing. Jesus is that who accomplishes punishment and reward. And so that means that we can be free from the burden of having to seek justice in everything that we do. And I'm not saying we're not concerned with going out and fighting human trafficking or abortion, but I'm saying when people wrong you, we can let it go. Because that justice was met somewhere else. One of the things I am, I see it in my parents now, who are grandparents. I am so ready to be a grandparent where you don't have to deal with disciplining your children. It is such a burden, and Johnny might agree with this too, to live in a house where kids are and have to be the moderator of justice. It is a burden for my own kids, let alone for my whole humanity. And Jesus lifts that burden from us. And instead, what he positions us to do is simply to love. Instead, what, G what Peter calls us to do is to be compassionate, to have unity of mind, to have a tender heart and a humble mind. You see, Peter's calling us to trust the economy of the cross because you have been blessed by not receiving what you deserved. You have been blessed by not receiving the retribution of your own sins. And Peter quotes Psalm 34 here, and I want us to look back and see what this psalm says. Verses 10 through 12. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is turned against those who do evil. What two great questions to appeal to the heart of humanity, right? 
Who desires to love life? Who desires to see good days? Turn to the justice of Jesus. See that in the scope of justice, it's not you or your sensibilities which matter. It's Jesus's. You weren't wronged. Jesus was. And I love the conclusion the psalmist gives that Peter is tying here because he closes and says, for those who are righteous, for those who are in Christ Jesus, the eyes of the Lord are on them and he hears their prayers. But for those who do evil, the face of the Lord is turned against it. And here's what this means for you. If God is the only true judge and the true exactor of justice, why should you, who do good in Christ Jesus, have any fear? Jesus, again, in Matthew 10, verse 28, he says this, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. God is the one who can destroy that. But God sets his face towards the righteous. And this thought slides immediately into Peter's next point as we begin in verse 13. Peter says this, Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. If God is the only one who can truly harm us, and if God is opposed to those who do evil, who should those who do good fear? No one. For if Christ makes us acceptable to God, we have nothing ultimately to fear. And this is the second mindset of the Christian revolutionary is Jesus over intimidation. Jesus over and above fear. Now, it's interesting what Peter does here because he doesn't just eliminate any sort of fear or badness in a general sense from the text. Because what he says is he says, who can harm you? Now, if you should suffer for righteousness sake, who can harm you? When people are harming you, let me tell you what you should do. Peter holds up both this lack of fear, but also this real presence of persecution. And what Peter is fighting for here is a right perspective on what truly harms. You see, in Jesus, you've been given eternal life. In Jesus, you've been given resurrected bodies because he himself has resurrected from the dead. And that means you really have nothing more to fear. And Peter, of all people, is one who knows the depth of this. Because it was Peter who stood the night of the crucifixion and out of fear and out of terror chose three times to deny that he even was friends or knew Jesus. But this same Peter now returns with a clearer picture of how the resurrection changed his hope. And he provides a greater endurance. And so I want you to think right now of the fears that are in your life. The worst thing that people can do to you, I want you to think about it. 
Because Peter here tells you that whatever this fear is, it's all bark and no bite. Look back at verses 13 and 14. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. And actually the word there, and if you have a King James Bible, but none of you do because you're all young millennials, it says, if you suffer for righteousness' sake, happy you will be. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, and yet do so with gentleness and respect. So some manuscripts interpret what you just read there, um, where in the ESV, which is what I'm reading, it says, have no fear of them. Other manuscripts in the grammar can actually say, do not fear like them. Do not fear like them. You see, fear is the best tool the world has because fear is all that it has. The world feasts on intimidation, but it can never actually follow through with its threats. That's why Peter says in verse 15, honor, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you. Literally what he's saying is set apart Jesus as holy. Make him different, make him distinct, give him a different status in your own heart as holy. And see in football, they, a lot of teams do this, uh, they set their minds to something called misdirection. And what they do is they line up and they have different men moving around before the snap. And then when the ball snaps, uh, guys are running in front of the quarterback and they're going different ways. And he can fake to one of these guys um, and they can run. Now the quarterback knows he's not going to give that ball away. So why is he doing this? Well, he's having all of this motion and all of these players crisscrossing in front of him because he wants to confuse the defense as to where the ball is really at. And this is the exact same game the world plays with your own affections. They surround us with movements and flash, trying to convince us that the ball is anywhere except the place Jesus promised it to be. The world preys on your fears in an attempt to blind you to the true position of Jesus Christ. See, I saw an advertisement on Instagram yesterday. And on it, it showed this provocatively dressed woman in an evening gown laying sensually on like a Maserati in front of this big, massive house. You know what the ad was for? The paving stones of the driveway. But you see what they did there? These guys got into a room and they're like, what do we got? Squished rocks. How are we going to sell it on its own? We have to scare them into it. If you don't buy these squished rocks, you will not have a car like that. You will not have a girl like this, and you'll not have a house like this. See, all they did was play on misdirection. They convinced you to buy into a fear of materialism, thinking that you might not have, trying to force your hand and force your action. But when we understand the unique role Christ plays in our life, we don't have to have those kind of fears. We don't have to have those kind of uncertain moments. And we know this because of the passage, those of you who are with us on Sunday, read in Colossians 3, 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. 
And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. The world provides misdirection, but the gospel provides us security. Our life is hidden in Christ. And here's why it's important to have this mindset fitted in your heart now. Because if we're not conscious about it, you're going to be caught off guard by it. And I know that firsthand because I was caught off guard by it. One of the most embarrassing moments for me as a Christian, and for me, I was on staff at a church at the time, um, working with a youth department, came in my freshman year. And I remember sitting in McGill Hall in a human health and performance class, and we are talking about human sexuality, and they brought in a representative from Curry Health Center, and she brought with her this big bowl of condoms. And she's, she starts talking like she wants to give us these condoms, and I froze. And so there's this lecture going on, and the lecture stops. And in my mind, the situation plays out, where she takes this bowl, and she starts to pass it through the class. And I just see, I mean, who wouldn't, what, they're free condoms. Who wouldn't want free condoms? And then there's me. I'm going to be the only person in this whole room who doesn't take this. And for five minutes, I can't, looking back at this, it is so embarrassing. I was petrified. I was terrified because what I held to be valuable in the gospel of Jesus Christ and to believe what the gospel says is best for me was countercultural to what the world says was best for me. And I didn't know how I was to act. I didn't want to seem old-fashioned or legalistic or unpopular or even unattractive. And I bet there are positions and places in your own life where you have these areas where you fear your faith becoming more active or more visible because you've began to fear the things that the world fears. You've bought the head fake of misdirection. You see, we fear standing up for the unborn because we don't want to oppose culture. We fear speaking up for the gospel because we don't want to be seen as narrow-minded. We fear abstaining from certain activities because we don't want to be seen as an outsider. But the gospel has already made us all of this. The gospel makes us citizens of another world and strangers in our own because Christ has given himself to us as our hope and that is also our confidence. And that means that when we as believers move into these pressure points, this mesh point of our future life and our current life, we can begin to have a different hope. And what Peter says here is not only do you have a different hope, but you can see a different blessing. You see, the world hopes to mute the message of Jesus Christ by resisting it. But what actually happens is that it makes salvation more manifest because it gives an opportunity to speak into it. You see, we have a reason to believe. You have a reason to hope. You have a reason to change. You have a reason to resist and a reason to live differently. And when the world opposes you, it puts you, whether they want it, you to be there or not, on a podium wherein you can speak the goodness of the gospel which has changed you. You can testify to the God who has promised you more. You can speak to the righteousness which has been turned towards you in the face of Jesus Christ. And throughout the ages, this has been one of the most effective but heaviest burdens of the church. You see, it was in Jesus' suffering that a Roman centurion said this man truly was the Son of God. It was at the stake 
of men loading up uh, wood to burn martyrs, that they often, hearing the dying screams of God's people, chose to repent and believe on their own. It was the one Nazi doctor who watched the execution of German pastor Diedrich Bonhoeffer, who watched Bonhoeffer die, and in that moment he said, never have I seen a man trust God more than I saw Diedrich Bonhoeffer trust God. You see, suffering doesn't mute the gospel. It transfigures it into something more compelling than any human fear could ever realize. You will face opposition for your beliefs because this world is opposed to Jesus. We have an opportunity to bless those who persecute us by sharing in those times of hardship the very same message for which we are being persecuted. And Peter says here, it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than it is to do evil. Why? Peter continues, verses 18 through 22. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is the hope of the believer. When you face suffering in your life, when you face a mesh point between culture and Christ, you can take hope that because Christ suffered for your sins, you don't have to. The only suffering you needed to fear as a human being was the suffering your sin demanded. But because the righteous Jesus suffered as the unrighteous sinner, we have been brought to God. Though we were once enemies, we are now sons of God. Though we were once objects of wrath, we have been brought near to God. The cross of Jesus allows us to pursue Jesus over retaliation. It allows us to pursue Jesus over intimidation. But all of this is only possible because the cross of Jesus frames the mindset of the Christian revolutionary as Jesus over all. There is nothing greater in this world, nothing more certain or more powerful than what Jesus has already accomplished. And Peter is going to talk a lot about suffering in the, rema- <coughs> excuse me, the remaining pages of this book. He's going to frame it as the expectation for Christian life. But what is it that allows us to live differently in the face of this opposition, only the truth and confidence that Jesus has already won. And if you are in him, you have nothing to fear. Not in your efforts of evangelism, not in your growth in terms of your sanctification, not in the sharing of the gospel. And though like Noah's family, God's people might be a remnant amidst a hostile culture, God will bring you safely through. And this is what baptism symbolizes. Peter kind of takes a different stance here on baptism than Paul does and ties it to Noah. Baptism, and we're going to have one in a couple weeks at Sovereign Hope, it's a physical sign of a spiritual reality. It symbolizes you being buried with Jesus and raised with Jesus in the newness of life. But here Peter says baptism symbolizes Christ as the new ark. 
where Moses and his family were among a hostile environment and people who, who spoke evil against him. When they were hidden inside the ark, they were brought safely through the waters of death. We too, when buried inside of Christ in his death, we pass through the judgment safely. We are made eternal people when we are saved by Jesus. But not only are we eternal people, but we are eternal people ruled by a Jesus who has conquered everything. Look back at verses 21 and 22. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. You see, we can face persecution. We can face the mess point of Christ and culture. We can face awkward situations, unprepared and prepared, because Jesus is Lord over everything. Jesus is Lord over the spiritual realm. Jesus is Lord over the physical realm. Jesus is Lord over your comfort, and Jesus is Lord over your suffering. This means that as you grow in your ability to understand the salvation Jesus gives you, you can be fitted with more confidence for your good. And if you remember, this is how Peter opened the book in chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. Look at how Peter connects trials. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You see, every believer is a revolutionary because Jesus has put us against the culture that we live in. And our politic is not power or popularity, but the cross of Jesus Christ. And as revolutionaries in Christ Jesus, you all have these mesh points, these pressure points. And Peter encourages you to embrace the pain, to live in the awkwardness, because it's for your joy. You see, you never know the beauty of Christ as much as when you see the emptiness of everything else. You never know the friendship of Christ as much as when you know the hostility of the world. And you never know the salvation of Christ as much as when you face the hostile threats of culture. So this school year, look to the cross as culture sees the cross in you. Look to Jesus and expect what Christ has called us to expect. And in the midst of that, let us put on unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Let us be saved by the Jesus who has brought us to God, and let us live in the blessing of the one who has brought us eternal life and have no fear. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you have conquered death. We thank you that you have uh, exacted perfect and true justice so that we no longer live in the burden of our own performance or in the performance of others, but we can love and serve with the gospel with which we ourselves have been saved. Lord, I pray for awkward situations in this group. 
I pray that the tension in our hearts is made real because it means that Christ is becoming more real for us. I pray that our lives look more and more like Christ and less and less like culture. And Lord, maybe the thing the university needs most is a little bit more persecution. Maybe the thing we need most in our life is a little more awkward situations where we have to trust in the goodness of God over the acceptance of man. Lord, you have made us righteous before God and we have nothing to fear. We only have grace to give and we have heaven to gain. So Lord, embolden us that we might know the truth of the gospel and trust in the resurrection of God to your glory and for the good of those around us. In your name, amen.